0: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
1: On February 18th, 2008, police in Orange County, California, got a frantic phone call from a housewife in Phoenix, Arizona. Her name was Carol Vendrick. Her husband, 71-year-old retired businessman Robert Vendrick, was missing. Carol told police that Robert, who goes by Bob, had gone to meet a business acquaintance of his in California. But he never called her over the weekend, never showed up at the airport in Long Beach, and never came home. Police went to search his hotel room at the Dana Point Marina Inn. They found all of his belongings, including his suitcase and laptop computer, inside the room. His diabetes medication was in the mini fridge. The fire was still burning in the fireplace, and Bob's rented blue PT Cruiser was parked in the parking lot. But there was no sign of Bob. There was also no sign of his business partner, Gary Shockey, the supposed mastermind of a multimillion-dollar government deal, motivational speaker, firewalker, and conman. I'm Katherine Townsend, and this is Red Collar. In February 2008, police in Dana Point, California, were searching for Bob Vendrick, a 71-year-old retired software systems analyst who appeared to have vanished into thin air. Bob spent many years living in San Jose, and then he and his wife Carol moved to Phoenix in 2004. Bob and Carol stayed in touch with their two children and three grandchildren and visited them regularly, according to court documents. So Carol knew immediately that something was very wrong, and she wanted the police to talk to Bob's business partner, Gary Shockey. When I was going to PI school, we always used to say that if anyone has more than two jobs on their business cards, they probably do none of them. Sometimes multiple jobs can make sense, if someone is a writer-slash-editor-slash-podcaster, for example, or a model-slash-actress-slash-TV host. But Gary Shawkey claimed to be, at various times, a commercial diver, security officer, a bodyguard for rock stars, and a best-selling author, among many others. He also claimed that he pioneered a new form of dieting that would cause people to lose massive amounts of weight just by drinking Bacardi and Diet Coke, according to court records. Despite what he claimed was an illustrious background, Gary, who was from Virginia, had no real training in any career. He did various odd jobs, but Orange County Sheriff's Investigator Mike Thompson told the TV show American Greed that Gary always had dreams of getting rich. Gary, who was originally from Virginia did have some success in the 90s. Gary was tall and heavyset, and with his bright red shirts and loud patterned ties that he wore to speak to crowds of investors, he looked like a low-rent version of Tony Robbins. Gary was married, and he and his wife had a son named Joseph in 1996. Just a few months later, Gary walked out the door, and according to his son, totally disappeared from his life. By the late 90s, Gary had resurfaced in Florida. This time, he was selling online diet supplements. His son Joseph told American Greed that he moved to Florida to reconnect with his father. By then, Gary was finding some success as a motivational speaker. He had a booming voice, and he found a following, and the money started rolling in. But according to Joseph, Gary went through the cash as soon as he collected it. Gary also attended training in Las Vegas to become a master firewalker. When he was 36, he actually walked 160 feet across hot coals measured at 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, entering the Guinness Book of World Records for longest firewalk. I remember watching an episode of the Penn & Teller show where they basically debunked firewalking. They said the hottest part of the coals are in the middle, and the coals on the outside have cooled a lot. So by the time the walkers are walking over them really fast, even if they're barefoot, they're basically walking over many levels of insulation. So, like everything else Gary Shockey did, firewalking was just an illusion. From computer software to energy drinks to real estate, it seemed like there was nothing that Gary wouldn't sell. And he wasn't just asking people to buy his products, he was asking them to invest in his companies. And he promised investors that they would get their money back Plus generous returns, typically 20% and up, according to investigators. Gary claimed to be one of the top entrepreneurs in America. He even wrote a memoir called If I Can, Anybody Can. It's still available in paperback on Amazon. The description on the website reads Quote In nineteen ninety seven, Gary was inducted into the international Who's Who of Business Professionals and Entrepreneurs. Today, Gary Shockey is one of America's top entrepreneurs and personal results coaches. Gary has gathered an international team of coaches and trainers dedicated to their own success and each other's. Gary's personally trained and highly motivated team meet for weekly teleconferences, which sometimes become brainstorming sessions, end quote. Looking closely at this quote, it's clear that Shockey probably wrote it himself. First of all, the international who's who is basically a nonsensical organization. And what CEO would use the term little people? In his autobiography, Gary Shockey said that he made $4 million in sales in 1997. It is true that around a 1,000 people invested in Gary's companies. There was just one problem. None of the products actually existed. Gary's business model was simple. He took people's money and never gave them anything in return. After a while, people started figuring out that Gary was a con artist and posting angry reviews and messages online. Then, in 2002, he met Bob Vendrick. Bob's family described him as loving and kind. Unfortunately, the same qualities that made him a nice guy also made him a target. Bob's wife, Carol, described him, according to court papers, as always very pleasant, hardworking, and wanting to help in any way that he could. But she also admitted that he was somewhat naive from his growing up in Indiana on a farm and somewhat gullible. In February 2005, Gary sent an email to Bob. He asked him if he knew, quote, anybody who can swing about $45,000 to get his company through, end quote. This was typical of Gary, according to investigators. He would often avoid asking directly for money, but he would say that he was in trouble or make it seem like his business was about to go under, so that Bob's natural instinct to help him would kick in. Time after time, Bob would ask when he could expect a return on his investment. And time after time, Gary would promise something back within a certain time frame, such as 90 days. By late 2005, Bob had given Gary $239,037 in wire transfers, $10,000 in checks, and another $10,500 via PayPal, according to court documents. In fact, over the years, Gary borrowed around $1.2 million from Bob. The money, Gary would later tell investigators, was meant to help him in keeping things going, but he never really specified what keeping things going meant. The Securities and Exchange Commission opened an investigation into Gary's business. They suspected fraud. Gary emailed Bob. He wrote that he was, bottom line, scared to death. I think you're the only one left that believes in what I'm doing. By 2006, Gary was living outside Richmond, Virginia with his second wife, and he was broke. Bob was still giving him money, but Bob was having problems of his own. Finally, in October 2006, Bob wrote an email to Gary telling him that financially, he was strapped to the limit. In 2007, Gary decided on a career change. He was going to become a bounty hunter. But like most of Gary's ideas, he put no effort into the actual training. Just a few months after beginning his new job, Gary was arrested for shooting over the head of a suspect he was trying to apprehend. He was charged with reckless use of a firearm and spent a month in jail. And Gary wasn't the only one whose life was falling apart. Bob was running out of money fast and Carol was getting suspicious. In 2007, Bob did his taxes himself and got hit with heavy penalties from the IRS. Carol did some detective work and found out that Bob sent money to Gary behind her back and that he'd set up a secret P.O. box. She was furious and started pressuring her husband to get their retirement money back. Carol also demanded that her husband get an attorney, so he met with one named Leo Pruitt. During this time, Bob's emails to Gary became more and more desperate. He wrote, Taxes killed any hope of my surviving. The message was clear. Bob needed his money back. And this time, with his wife and lawyer asking questions, he wasn't going to back off. That's when Gary hit Bob with his most ambitious lie yet. Gary said that he was about to be the recipient of a top-secret government grant to provide computer services for the federal government. He convinced Bob that he would receive his original investment of $1.2 million back. Though the story seemed outrageous, Bob desperately wanted to believe that he would recoup his investment. This brings up something else that often happens in fraud cases. The victims are embarrassed. They would almost rather go along with a lie than admit to their loved ones and themselves that they may have fallen for a con, especially if those same loved ones had warned them not to do business with that person in the first place. They need to hold on to the fantasy that someday their faith will be rewarded. In order to believe that he had any hope of recovering his retirement money, Bob needed to believe Gary's story. On February 3rd, 2008, Bob emailed Gary. He said that Carol wanted Leo Pruitt to review all documentation before he signed anything. He also wrote... Is this just another carrot you're putting before me without any actual contract? I'm in a very desperate situation financially. Gary met Bob in Phoenix on February 9, 2008. After the meeting, Bob told Carol that Gary's deal involved 22 different government agencies. He told her that to close the deal, he and Gary would have to sail to San Clemente Island, a military-owned island roughly 25 nautical miles south of Catalina Island. Now, Carol was suspicious of Gary and of the whole deal she begged her husband to meet with Leo Pruitt, which he did on February 11, 2008. Bob repeated what Gary had promised him, that he would receive his entire $1.2 million investment back sometime around February 19th. And also, he was supposed to get an additional $600,000 per year for the next five years. But there was a catch. First, Bob had to deposit another $100,000 into an account at Wells Fargo. Gary also told Bob that the deal would require him to fly to California for several days of training on the use of federal forms and procedures. Before leaving for California, Bob actually tried to register an LLC with the name GSRV, the initials of Gary Shockey and Robert Vendrick, but parts of the online form were not completed, so the LLC was never formally registered. By now, Bob was totally out of money. So on February 13th, two days before leaving for California, He called his younger brother, Charles Vendrick, who went by his middle name, Fred, to ask for a loan of $40,000 so that he could put the entire $100,000 into the joint Wells Fargo account. His brother wired the money and Bob flew to Long Beach on the 15th. He never came home. Police investigating the disappearance of Bob Vendrick found surveillance camera footage that showed Bob meeting Gary at the Dana Point Marine on the 15th. Bob checked into his hotel, the Marina Inn, at around 3.30 p.m. He called Carol to let her know where he was staying. Then Bob called someone else, a woman named Charlene Slamma. Bob and Charlene had met in 2001, and over the years, they continued to have a relationship, mainly, according to reports, when Bob traveled for business. He asked Charlene to come to his hotel, So she drove the seven hours to Dana Point and spent the night with him at the Marina Inn. The morning of the 16th, Charlene told investigators that Bob was already awake when she woke up. Over breakfast, he told her that he had to go to Catalina Island to meet his boss and clear some big money-making deal. She said that Bob seemed excited, but also nervous about the fact that he and Gary were taking a boat out into the open water when neither of them knew anything about sailing. She told investigators that Bob asked her to wait at the hotel, and said he would be back at some point that day. Then Bob left, taking only his wallet and cell phone, leaving behind his computer, suitcase, and all his diabetes medication. He then drove to meet Gary at the boat. Surveillance cameras on local businesses recorded a light going on aboard the boat at around 5.58 a.m. Bob's rental car pulled in a minute later. At 7.04 a.m., the boat can be seen pulling away. A fuel dock attendant remembered Bob and Gary coming in to buy gas that morning. A receipt shows the time of the gas purchase at 7:50 a.m. So, Gary and Bob stopped for gas somewhere along the way, and shortly after that, they sailed out into the open water. Though since neither of them actually knew how to sail, they were depending entirely on the 9.9 horsepower engine, which had a top speed of about 5 knots. It was a gorgeous morning, and conditions were perfect for boating. Investigators estimated that it would take around 5 hours and 45 minutes to travel from the Dana Point breakwater to the Avalon Harbor on Catalina Island. But by the time Gary got to Catalina Island, Bob was gone. Gary arrived back at Avalon Harbor at around 5 p.m. Investigators learned that he told someone on the dock that his partner had become seasick, so he dropped him on the pier and sailed on alone. But after that, Bob was never seen again anywhere. Charlene stayed in the room all day and then stayed the night, but Bob never came back. She left the next morning. At the time, she later told investigators, she thought that Bob and Gary were off on some kind of boy's adventure, and she wasn't too worried. Meanwhile, Gary went bar hopping. On February 18th, Gary was in Buster's Beach House, a bar in Long Beach. He told the bartender that he was a commercial lobster fisherman and said that his phone had gotten water damage while he was checking his traps. He borrowed a phone from a customer so that he could call his wife in Virginia. Investigators think that during this phone conversation, Gary's wife told him that Bob was missing. Now Gary had another problem, because by now, the news about Bob's disappearance was all over local TV. Gary went to Wells Fargo and asked for a $30,000 cashier's check from the joint account to purchase a Harley-Davidson motorcycle, but the money was blocked by Wells Fargo's wire investigation division. Later, Orange County investigators would block the remaining $70,000. dollars Gary called the Orange County Sheriff's Department. He spoke to Deputy Mike Thompson, the lead investigator on the case. At this point, Gary seemed to be genuinely concerned about Bob. He claimed that about half an hour after he and Bob sailed out of Dana Point, Bob started having doubts about the boat's seaworthiness. He also said that Bob hadn't been feeling well. So, he said he turned the Odyssey around, dropped Bob off on the dock in Dana Point, and sailed to Catalina alone. Meanwhile, investigators had talked to Bob's wife, his family, and his girlfriend. Police investigating Gary Shockey found out that unbeknownst to his friend Bob, Gary had been making preparations of his own for days, and they had nothing to do with the government deal. After taking a bus from Phoenix to Orange County, Gary made his way to Laguna Beach. On the night of February 12th, he went to a bar in Huntington Beach. While he was there, He struck up a conversation with a Chilean abalone farmer named Carlos. On February 13th, Gary purchased the 23-foot sailboat, the Odyssey, for a man named Tom Smith for just $1,000. The boat was over 40 years old, and Gary had no idea how to sail it. The only reason that he bought the boat, investigators believed, was to make Bob disappear. The day before the boat arrived, Tom took Gary out on the water for a couple of hours to let him practice and show him how to use the boat. Tom would later tell investigators that although Gary paid attention when he showed him how to drive and where the two anchors were, he appeared to have zero interest in learning to sail. The night of February 14th, Gary spent the night in the cabin aboard the Odyssey. He had been at the Marina Inn, the same hotel Bob stayed in, the night before, but his credit card had been declined. Right before Bob arrived, Gary went to a hardware store in Dana Point. According to court documents, he bought several items, including a handheld depth finder, batteries, an 18-pound river anchor, a paint tray and roller, a first aid kit, an outboard horsepower engine, and a tool kit. Investigators say the anchor, a river or mushroom anchor, was extremely significant because this type of anchor is absolutely useless for securing a vessel at sea. So if the anchor couldn't hold the boat, what was Gary planning to use it for?
0: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.
1: While he was doing his shopping, Gary's boat actually got towed because he had not rented a slip and had left the Odyssey parked in a prohibited zone. He managed to get the boat back from the Harbor Patrol and started installing the engine that he just bought. In another crazy twist, a deputy sheriff actually offered to help him put in the engine, but he said he noticed that Gary was able to move it around easily. The deputy said later he made some kind of comment about this being impressive. The deputy said that smooth-talking Gary told him he should see him when he has to take down a 300-pound man. He also told them that he was a bounty hunter from back east who had made over 1,000 arrests. Detectives took Gary into the Long Beach Police Department headquarters to conduct a more formal interview. Red-collar experts say that traditional police interrogations, which play on a suspect's emotions and try to use their emotions against them to get a confession, just don't work on red-collar criminals. In this case, the Orange County detectives did absolutely the right thing. They just let Gary talk about his favorite subject, himself. They knew that they had no body. They just had to let Gary keep talking and hope that he tripped up eventually. They were able to use his inconsistencies against him later.
0: You mentioned to me something about that you wanted that money because Bob gave it to you. What entitles you to that money? What have you done? Bob is now missing. There is a balance left of whatever amount. What have you done that now entitles you to that money, and why should that money not be refunded back to Carol? Because... Bob gave me that money to keep things going. Okay, well now there's nothing left to keep going. Well sure there is because we don't know that Bob's not gonna show up in Daytona and we don't know that Bob's not gonna show up in Chile. And we don't know that Bob's not gonna contact me. So we do not know that anything's over with. We do not know that Bob isn't going to show up. Well, if he does then he can call Carol. She can send him the money.
1: The investigators noticed that Gary talked about Bob using past tense. Gary told the detectives that Bob hated his wife, and he blamed Carol for him disappearing. Gary told police, according to Patch, quote, he thinks his wife is a . I hate to say it, but so do I, end quote. He also told police that he thought Bob had run off to South America with Charlene. Gary said that he planned to meet Bob and Carlos, the abalone farmer that he'd met in the bar, in Chile at the end of April. Gary said that after that, he and Bob planned to head to Bike Week, the annual motorcycle festival in Daytona, Florida. Gary told police that the night before they sailed out in the open water, he noticed that Bob had a large duffel bag with him that he said contained between $200,000 and $500,000 in cash. Gary told investigators that when he and Bob met up with Carlos, they were going to build underwater anti-piracy fencing for him. Gary admitted to police he had no experience in this type of work, but he said he was going to use positive thinking to succeed. But when investigators talked to Carlos, he immediately shot down any suggestion that he had been considering doing business with Gary. Just like everything else, that story was a lie. Police asked Gary why Bob would have left without his medicine. Gary seemed to have an answer for everything. He claimed that he and Bob had gone to CBS so that Bob could buy a new glucometer and insulin supplies. Investigators did find Bob and Gary on the drugstore surveillance cameras, but when they checked the sales records at CBS, they found no records of those purchases. Then there were the voicemails. Investigators believed that Gary had left these in order to help establish a digital alibi. While en route to Catalina, Gary left several voicemails on Bob's cell phone. First, at 11.06 a.m., he left a message informing Bob he was halfway to Catalina and had roughly three hours left before he got there, and commenting that he hoped Bob had made it on the Catalina Express Ferry. Gary left two more messages, both at around 2.30 p.m. This time he said there were issues with the boat, he might be a little late. Then he gave Bob an address in Avalon so that he and Charlene could meet him there that night. At 4.01 and 4.52 p.m., Gary left more messages, his voice full of seemingly genuine concern, asking why Bob had not called him back and why he hadn't shown up for dinner. The next morning... Gary left more voicemails asking Bob if he had followed through with the plan. He said in one of them, You want me to take you down to Mexico? I have the whole thing set up. I'm sitting over here on Catalina Island ready to go. I've got charts. I've got everything planned, and you're not calling me back, end quote. Gary also claimed that Bob had a secret double life involving a huge gambling habit. He said that Bob had a party life and hookers that nobody else in his life knew about. He said Bob was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Outwardly, Gary appeared to be cooperating with the investigation. But in a follow-up interview on February 20th, Gary clearly knew that his stories were starting to fall apart. At that point, he admitted that the Carlos story was made up. He now said that the $100,000 in the Wells Fargo account had been a gift from Bob to keep Gary going. He called it good time money. He said that Bob had asked him how much he needed to cover his expenses for a few months. And when Gary told him $100,000, Bob just sent the money, no questions asked. He said that Bob had been sending him money for years, and this was no big deal. Investigators then confronted Gary with the false information from his own voicemails. Why had he said that he prepared charts to travel to Mexico and other places, they asked. Most telling of all, police pointed out that despite his concerned voicemails and professed love for Bob, Gary never looked for him. And while he was out bar hopping and chatting with strangers about his amazing experiences globetrotting, he never once mentioned that he had a missing best friend. But police still had no hard evidence and no body. On February 22nd, a search warrant was issued for the Odyssey, but investigators did not find any DNA evidence of note. There was no blood and no sign that Bob had ever been there at all. But they also noticed what wasn't there, they didn't find two significant items that Gary had bought, rope and the mushroom anchor. Investigators believed that Gary had thrown Bob overboard, so they kept searching for evidence and building their case. Meanwhile, Gary headed to bike week in Daytona. On March 5th, 2008, Gary contacted police to let them know that Bob had contacted him, and he said that Bob was hiding yet another dark secret. Bob was seriously ill, he said, and this had caused him to run from his friends and family. Gary complained about the fact that Wells Fargo was not letting him access the $100,000 in the account, arguing that it was not Bob's money. He said, Bob gave that to me. He wired that money to me. Gary kept calling the Orange County Sheriff's Office, insisting that Bob was alive and in Mexico. He said he walked across the border in Brownsville, Texas and saw Bob in person. And each time, he had another excuse for why Bob never resurfaced. He said Bob had developed dementia and that he didn't want to be contacted by anyone. At one point, Gary told police that Bob was traveling under the alias Mike Vendrick and staying at the Hotel Victoria in Matamoros, Mexico. He gave investigators a note that he claimed was in Bob's handwriting and said it had been delivered through a secret Mexican contact on an island off the Texas coast or through a bartender he met in Daytona, depending on when investigators were asking him. The story kept changing. Investigators would also later confirm that nobody named Robert, Mike, or Vendrick had stayed at the Hotel Victoria on the dates Gary gave them. None of Gary's claims about Bob's alleged secret life in Mexico were true. A handwriting analyst later determined that the handwritten note was not, in fact, written by Bob Vendrick. On May 16, 2008, Gary came back to Orange County to talk to detectives again. By now, he was admitting that he had told Bob that there was a deal for a computer program, But when investigators asked him what a jury would make of all his claims, Gary admitted they would probably conclude that he killed Bob. And there was still no sign of Bob, despite a massive search that involved local police, federal agents, and Interpol. In February 2009, Gary was arrested, extradited to California, and charged with murder for financial gain and grand theft. The trial began in 2011. Gary was found guilty, and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for Bob's murder. To this day, Gary has never admitted to killing Bob. He admits to being a liar and a thief, but insists he's not a murderer. Gary appealed the verdict, arguing that his claim that he took Bob to the dock at Dana Point between 8 and 10 a.m., rather than throwing him overboard, could not be disproven. But an appeals court upheld the verdict, and the California Supreme Court denied review of the appeal in 2013. According to court documents, Gary, quote, did not come off as a pillar of veracity in speaking with authorities. In fact, his assertions were thoroughly discredited by investigators. And every time he claimed Vendrick was alive while he was gallivanting about in Florida and Mexico, it was shown that not only was he incorrect about Vendrick's whereabouts, he was actively and incompetently lying. We are not at liberty to second guess the jury's determination Shockey was not telling the truth when expressing his innocence to authorities, end quote. The court documents also stated that in order for Gary's story about dropping Bob off to be true, Bob, who had no luggage, would have had to disable his cell phone, get rid of all his credit cards and his ID, leave his money behind without saying anything to his family, then somehow travel to Mexico on foot, all without anyone ever seeing him and without being seen on any surveillance camera. The court said, quote, he then travels, presumably on foot, to Mexico, where he takes on the name Mike and decides to spend his golden years using every cheap espionage thriller trope he can think of to lead Shockey on a merry chase across the North American continent, never to be heard from again, end quote. The appeals document has another line in it that I think sums up the mentality of Gary Shockey and of many red-collar criminals in general. They wrote, quote, "...while it is a time-honored tradition among the worst sorts of people, Shockey's story redefines the concept of blaming the victim, end quote." The court maintained the only reasonable conclusion is that Bob died somewhere at sea, between Dana Point and Avalon. The judges found it extraordinary that not only did Gary kill Bob, he then turned around and believed he was entitled to the entire $100,000 that Bob had managed to scrape together to give him. They pointed out that Gary Shockey is a large man, and he could have easily overpowered Bob. They wrote, quote, "...there are any number of ways to murder at sea without leaving blood on the deck of one ship." at least one of which involves a river anchor, end quote. But the biggest clues really were in Gary's behavior. Gary was expressing all this concern for Bob. He left 13 voicemails for him. Yet he went out, got drunk, and bought a pirate flag. It was obvious, the court concluded, that Gary did not care about Bob, only about crafting an alibi. At the time Bob vanished, his finances had been decimated by Gary. He had nothing left. So Bob was no longer useful to Gary, And by continuing to email Gary to demand his money back, Bob was becoming a problem. Gary clearly decided that he had to get rid of him. The motive was shown clearly when a senior forensic accountant with the Orange County District Attorney's Office conducted a full analysis of transactions made between Bob and Gary between May 2004 and February 2008. Gary had told police that Bob had given him about a million dollars in wire transfers and checks, but he said he'd returned around half a million dollars in cash to Bob the forensic accountants found otherwise. They found that Gary only transferred funds twice in any way to Bob, totaling roughly $2,700, while Bob gave Gary roughly $907,000. No evidence was found that Bob withdrew large amounts of cash at any point, which totally blew apart Gary's duffel bag full of money story. Gary never told the truth about what really happened on the boat, but a cellmate of Gary's who spoke to prosecutors has a version of the story that's probably closest to the truth. He told investigators that Gary confessed to him that he'd killed Bob. He said that Gary claimed he shut off the motor, told Bob there was engine trouble, and then overpowered him, hooked him to the anchor, and threw him overboard. In the end, the prosecution didn't really need the informant's testimony to nail Gary. Gary's inability to keep his story straight meant that he did the job himself. After he was found guilty of first degree murder, in July 2011, Gary was sentenced to life in prison without parole. In 2014, Gary died in prison of heart failure. I find myself wanting to go back in time and save Bob. It's easy to listen to this story and think to yourself, oh, these stories were so outrageous. I would never believe anything like that. The FBI says that seniors are targeted more than almost any other group by white-collar and red-collar criminals. And it's a time in their life when they're extremely vulnerable. I mean, I think about my grandparents. These were hard-working people who served their country, loved their families— They literally could not imagine there were predators like Gary Shockey walking around in the world. And unfortunately, I've seen this scenario play out one too many times. This is the second murder I've talked about in three weeks, where someone threw another person overboard. Now, Bob had a loving family who tried to protect him. But at the end of the day, he just never imagined that someone who was his close friend could do something like that to him. We always tell people to never meet someone alone who you're having a financial dispute with And I would say this especially applies on the open water. Never sail out on the open water with someone you're having a financial dispute with. To this day, Bob's body has never been found. And if you have any doubts about how cold-blooded Gary Shockey is, keep in mind that at trial, it came out that right before Gary went to the hardware store, he raided the Wells Fargo account to get the money for his shopping spree. So Bob wired Gary the money for the anchor that Gary used to throw him overboard. Red Collar is an Chuck original podcast. Research and writing by me, Catherine Townsend, with production assistance from Melissa Gostola and Resonate Recordings. You can find all of our source material for this episode on our website, redcollarpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?
0: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarporg tools. This is a big year.